Good morning again. Uh, my name is Chris, a member of the teaching team here, which means most weeks, if, if I've not met you, most weeks I sit where you are. Uh, but once in a while, maybe two or three times a year, I have the honor and uh, privilege to, to come up here and to lead us together into God's Word, which is uh, something I'm excited to do uh, with you this morning. If you haven't already, I would encourage you, whether it's in a paper Bible or a digital Bible, to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, uh, where Maddie read some of that. We're going to be there this morning. If you do not have a Bible and you need one uh, this morning, you can raise your hand. Somebody in the back will grab one for you. And if you need one at home, just take that one with you. It would be uh, our, our gift to you. Uh, if you are newer into the Bible, uh, Hebrews is near the back, so just kind of keep flipping toward the end. I think it's book 58 out of 66, so you're, you're getting close to the end if you're looking for Hebrews. And we said, we've been in this study now for a couple of months, and we said that uh, Hebrews is a letter that was written, it's basically a sermon that was written down, and it was sent to a collection of Jewish Christians probably 30 or 40 years after Jesus was, uh, was alive on earth and had died and, and, and returned to heaven. So we've been through this, like I said, we've been working through this, chapters one through eight for the last couple of months. We paused for two weeks for what we call training camp. And so as we're getting back into it today and starting in chapter nine, I, I thought it might be helpful to just kind of look back over the last couple of months and do a real quick catch up to where we've been. If, if we looked at, if we tried to to take a theme that we've seen so far from Hebrews. Uh, I think it's represented in our little intro video uh, we do in transition. One of the themes I see in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than, that's what the, the video shows, or, or superior to anything or anyone else to whom or to which we would compare him. Uh, and the author of Hebrews has been, has been drawing these comparisons and kind of building that, that case over the, the chapters we've looked at so far. Uh, chapter one, if you, if you have a paper Bible, you kind of flip back or you can scroll up uh, to chapter one and we'll just page through for a second. Um, there was a comparison of Jesus to angels, right? It seemed like the, the recipients of this letter had some fascination with angels. And so the author starts by pointing out that angels, as majestic and powerful as they are, they were created to worship and to serve God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, quoting uh, the Old Testament in there, there, there was a quote that said, speaking, the father speaking of the son, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And that, that's a relationship the angels don't have uh, with God the father. And, and near the end of chapter one, we saw, we, we saw what looked like a, a coronation ceremony for Jesus after he had returned to heaven. And at one point in there, the father says to Jesus, sit at my right hand. And that was both this, this picture of honor, a unique honor, that's his above all the angels and also of finished work, which we'll come back to a little later this morning. Uh, chapter two was last time I was with you uh, and we, we have this warning to hold fast to the message of salvation through Jesus alone, not to drift away with the currents around us. So some of you participated in the crowd surfing of the swan, uh, the giant inflatable swan that almost knocked over the camera. camera we remember that last time. Uh, then we were told of Jesus's ability, his unique ability to, to understand, to empathize with us because as God taking on human flesh as well, living a life. Uh, he, he has been through the same suffering and temptation that we have. Chapters three and four gave us a, a comparison of Jesus to Moses, right? A faithful servant, but sinful, faithful, but sinful, imperfect man that God used to deliver his people from captivity and slavery to Egypt and lead them to a temporary place of rest. And then we see Jesus as God's faithful and perfect son 
sent to deliver his people from slavery to sin and lead them to an eternal rest. And then over the course of the next several chapters, we were introduced to this picture of Jesus as both king and high priest, and especially the, the picture of him as high priest. We were reminded of God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through his descendants and how that was pointing us actually to Jesus. And we're reminded of the establishment of the family lines through Abraham's great-grandsons, right? There was this line of kings that came through Judah, uh, and then there was this line of, of priests that came through Levi. And that, the, the author raises the question, well, then, if Jesus is both king and priest for us, then how does that work, as he was born from the line of Judah, uh, when he came to earth. And so, so we were introduced to this obscure person from the Old Testament we don't know much about, Melchizedek or Melchizedek. He was this priest and king that God used to bless Abraham. And his name means king of righteousness. And he was the king of Salem or Jerusalem, which means peace. So you have this, this initial uh, picture of a priest king who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and that points forward to Jesus, our eternal priest and king. Along the way, we had more than one stern warning, I guess you could say, of the near-term and eternal consequences of hearing, of understanding this message, the truth of salvation, and then ignoring it or rejecting it. And then finally, three weeks ago, when, when Jerry was here, before we broke for training camp, we looked at chapter 8, which sets the stage really well for chapters 9 and 10, and we saw the description again of Jesus as high priest, but, but a better one than the descendants of Levi who served the nation of Israel. Because they had administered this old covenant, Jerry talked about that, between God and his people that required these repeated sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. But then Jesus changes things. In chapter 8, verse 5, we, we, we saw this statement that they, the Levitical priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. But verse 8 said, quoting a prophecy of the Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Jerry talked about that as well. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. So if you were here with Jerry, do you remember the thing he kind of plopped down on the, on the right here that was the, that was the shadow and the copy of something more significant? Everybody remember that? What was it? Eiffel Tower. All right, so in honor of Jerry, I have my Eiffel Tower here, uh, last summer, it won't even stand up, last summer, too small, it's bigger if you've seen it in person, um, last summer my family and I had a chance to take a trip, visit a cousin of mine who was stationed in Germany, visit the Parkers, who many of you know, in, uh, in France, and so we, we stopped and saw the Eiffel Tower and got this. Uh, so as, as, my, as my kids and my wife, Lisa and I, were talking about this passage, I asked my three children, hey, do you have something, can, can you think of something that you have that, that is a shadow in a copy, or it will draw your mind and your attention to some memory or something more significant than the object itself. So, so Braden, who's here uh, this morning, my other two were with us in first service, gave me this. Uh, this is a, it's a rock, it's a stone, uh, which he picked up at, on the same trip when we were in Germany, he picked up at the top of Zugspitz, which is the tallest mountain in Germany, near the, near the southern uh, southern edge of Germany, about 10,000 feet tall. We, we went up to the top of that, uh, majestic. You can see into multiple countries from there. Um, and, uh, and at the top of that is a, is a uh, permanent ice, is a glacier, right? So this little stone is a picture, is a piece of, that points our, our mind to, uh, to Zugspitz. I asked Blake, who was here in the first service, he, he's, a, he, he's a fan of animals. So he gave me not one, uh, but two, uh, <laughs> two, 
This one's larger, but it's not as big as the real ones. Uh, if you've ever seen you know, Shamu or, or the, many, the many whales that have been Shamu, um, uh, what is, what's the correct name for this? Orca. And somebody said killer whale. That's the kind of the nickname as well, yeah? They're pretty, they're pretty amazing if you see them in person. Uh, they are actually the, uh, they are the largest of the toothed whale category, which is dolphins. So they're the largest member of the dolphin family. If you didn't know, I learned this. Uh, all dolphins are whales, but not all whales are dolphins. Um, and, and orcas are the only, uh, the only whale, dolphin whale, that lives in all of the oceans of the world. So there you go, a little piece of trivia for you. Uh, my daughter, I asked her for something as well, and she gave me one, she, it was several things she could have chosen, but she gave me this. Uh, <laughs> I'll explain to you why it was not something else in a moment. Um, this is a, a chair, uh, obviously, uh, but it's smaller than the real one. I threatened to sit on it. She suggested I shouldn't. Um, but this is something she uses, along with several other things, uh, with her American Girl doll. I wouldn't have known what that was until I had a daughter. American Girl doll, Molly, which she received from her aunt, my sister-in-law, who grew up playing with this doll. And then when she had four sons and said, no more, uh, no girls, then she gave it to Bailey, uh, my daughter. So so if you've ever watched, you know, if you ever watched kids, Bailey will turn 10 here uh, in a few weeks, kids of that age playing with dolls and small furniture and things, you, you, just, you just watch them demonstrate how this small thing is a picture of, it's an example of something more significant, right? So we have these four metaphors from, from our lives, and we're going to go back to chapter 9 here where, where God gives us another picture, another metaphor, something that's drawing our mind, right? We see something tangible that, that reveals and points us to something more significant. Uh, Maddie just read a verses, verses 11 to 14, which we're going to come to in a minute, but before we do, verses 1 through 10 are basically a, a condensed history lesson. Would have been very familiar, so people who are hearing this letter for the first time would have just kind of flown past, yes, 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 I understand all of those things. But because very few of us have a Jewish heritage and, and as much familiar, familiarity with these things. I wanted to slow down today and, because this is going to be a foundation for the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10 in, in particular. So rather than quoting chapter and verse of every, everything, I want to put a table or a list on the screen, and uh, I can give this to you later on if you're curious, but all of the things listed here are going to show up either directly or indirectly through uh, the passage that we're going to work through here for the next few minutes. So all of these things are pointing back to, to history they would have understood from, from various parts of the Old Testament. We're going to jump back and forth between the Old Testament and, uh, and Hebrews a bit as we go along. So let's start in verses 1 and 2. It says that now even the first covenant, the old covenant Jerry talked about, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, and if this is familiar territory for you, this is the tabernacle that, that was from the Old Testament. We'll come back to that several times here. A tent was prepared in the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence was called the holy place. So pause there for just a second because I, I, I want to make sure with a group this large, we probably have a couple of groups in, in the room. One uh, group, I just mentioned Abraham and a tabernacle and the Old Testament and Moses and a whole bunch of things. If that's not familiar to you, uh, if, if that just all flew past you, like I've never heard, I don't know what that guy is talking about. That's great. You're, you're absolutely welcome here. I just want you to know that, that the rest of this is going to build on some context. Uh, it's, it's connected to all of that. So if this is brand new territory for you, here's what I would suggest. Uh, look around the room at some point, you know, 
just be uh, sly about it, during the morning and look for somebody who's kind of nodding along, like, oh yeah, it looks like they know what he's talking about. Introduce yourself to that person after, after the service and ask them to, to meet you at Little Dottie or Panera or something today or in the next few weeks and just tell them, hey, listen, I'm brand new to this. Uh, can you help me? Can, can you fill in some context? Because that stuff Chris was talking about was just flying past me and I don't, I don't, I don't have the backstory. And uh, just ask for the backstory. And I would expect most people would be willing to do that. If you're in the other group and you know the backstory, number one, say yes when somebody asks you uh, and, and do that. That would be awesome. Uh, but number two, just to kind of insert where we are in the timeline of, of the history from Exodus, this is after Moses, God through Moses, leads the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and they get to Mount Sinai, and they're at the base of this mountain. And, and while there, while they're camped out there for a year or so, God gives Moses the covenant and the law that's going to spell out how things are going to work for the next couple thousand years until Jesus comes. This is where we're picking up when he's when he's describing how this tabernacle is going to be built and things like that. Exodus 25 verses 8 and 9 say, uh, God speaking to Moses, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So we're going to, we're going to go into kind of what the tabernacle was and how it was built here a, a bit this morning. But before we go there, I, I want to just draw our attention to how it fit with the, the camp. So there's hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps a million people moving around for what ends up being 40 years through various parts of the wilderness. So we have this picture. I realize it's a bit small on the screen, but you have all of these families, kind of the descendants of Levi and Judah and, and the rest of, the, of the, uh, the, the early fathers there. And they're, they're told to set up camp in certain ways. And in the very center of this camp, very center of a you know, million people, is the tabernacle in its courtyard. So this tent, this, this place is in the middle. And every time they picked up camp and moved, they set, the, they set that up again and everybody camps around that. So we've got this, this kind of at the center of what's going on. And there were some rules about the tabernacle, right? Only the Levites, the descendants of Levi, were allowed inside the tabernacle. If we understand correctly, other people, though, could come and go. Israelites could come into that courtyard. They would have brought in animals for sacrifices according to the requirements of the laws that God had given them. We'll put up a second drawing here as well and, and just kind of zoom in a little bit. We can see a bit of, a, of an artist's rendition of the tabernacle itself, and we'll, we'll go even closer to that in a minute. But outside of that were an altar and a, and a basin and, and space for, for the, the things that would have been happening. So if we continue in verse 3 uh, in Hebrews 9 for a second, we're, we're, we're going to start to zoom in here. It says, and, and we'll put this on the screen in a second, uh, behind the second curtain, so there's a curtain inside the tabernacle that separated two parts, was a section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim or cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So again, they would have been familiar with this. We're, get, we're reminding ourselves of some details here, or learning perhaps for the first time. So one more drawing. Yeah, we've already got it. We're zoomed in a little bit. We get a sense of how these things are laid out. So the walls are made of, of thick curtains, right? This was a tent that could be set up, taken down, moved, and set up again. So the walls are made of thick curtains. There's a curtain on the, the right-hand side of the screen that separated the courtyard. It was the door, right, to get inside of the tabernacle. Uh, and if you go in, you're in the holy place where there's, if you can see it, it looks like kind of a candelabra and a table, We'll talk about these things in a minute. 
And then the, the second curtain, which is only half, half drawn there, uh, and this, this was the, the curtain, we're going to read about this in just a second, that had the cherubim woven into it. And if you went through that, you would be in the most holy place, the holy of holies. And inside there is a box called the Ark of the Covenant and some things that we'll read about in a second. So this is our orientation uh, as, as you're reading through these things. Um, Exodus 26 gives us some description of, of some of this. Uh, it says, God's again speaking to Moses. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. So we're describing the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony, which we'll come back to, in there within the veil. The veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side and, and, the, and the table on the north side. So they're inside the tabernacle. You've got in the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant, or also called the Ark of the Testimony. It's a box uh, that, that was built to hold, in particular, the tablets on which God had written not just the Ten Commandments, like we see in, in the, the you know, pictures and movies, but all of the law, all of the, the law that he had given According to the author of Hebrews, at some point, in addition to those tablets, they also began storing this jar of manna and this special wooden staff in there as well. And on that list that I put on the screen a minute ago were the references where you can go and read the significance of those things from Israel's history. Uh, speaking of the ark, though, this is spelled out. God gives the, uh, the, the directions in Exodus 25. He says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. A cubit was a measure of length. I, I think I remember it was kind of from hands to elbow or something like that, a measure of, of distance, though. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside, you shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings, and, and there's, there's rings that go on the bases, and inside of the rings go poles, and that's how they would carry this as they moved things around. Verse 16, you shall put into the ark the testimony, the tablets uh, capturing this, that I shall give you. And on top of the ark, verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, on the two ends of the mercy seat, one on one end, one on the other. They shall spread out their wings above and overshadow the mercy seat. They're going to face each other. And, uh, and then you put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you put the testimony. And there, this is the important part, verse 22, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that, you are, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So for the next 40 years, as this moves around, that's the place where God's presence is to come, and he would meet with the, the high priest and would speak uh, for, the, for the people. And there's some other tradition uh, and ceremony that goes with that too. So if we go back to our drawing, I want to just point out one more thing that's referenced right in the middle there, uh, just on this side of that second curtain is the altar of incense, um, and uh, that's spelled out in Exodus 30. God says, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. I'll skip a few verses. It says, you shall put it in front of the veil that's above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that's above the testimony where I'll meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps, and when he sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering or, or pour a drink offering on it. There were other places and, and, and ways to do those. Uh, 
Aaron, who was Moses' brother, the first, uh, the first high priest, shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. We're going to come back to that. He shall make atonement for it once a year throughout generations. It's most holy to the Lord. I made notes about a tangent. I won't take us down. If you caught the, what appears to be the difference between where the altar of incense is uh, from Exodus versus what's said in Hebrews, and you're curious about that, come and talk to me later on. I'll give you the, the, the reasons why people have, that, why that sounds different. Um, in any case, verses one through five there give us a, a kind of a summary reminder of the layout of the tabernacle. This is going to be part of this picture that, that, that God's showing us. It's not just the, the functional place where these things are going to happen. But verses 6 through 10 kind of follow with what it is that happens inside the tabernacle, in particular on, on the one day that we'll come back to. Verse 6 says, These preparations having thus been made, so you've got the place, the priests go regularly into the first section, the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. Pause there for two quick comments. One, one there's, a, there's a little bit of debate about the uninten- unintentional there. Uh, most people, I think, read it and go, oh, it's just exactly what, what it says. It's the sins that people didn't mean to commit. And that's, that's, that may be the case. Um, the one question people bring up when they look at it and take it at kind of face value is that there's a place in Leviticus somewhere else, Leviticus chapter 4, that has a process, a, a kind of a, a ritual that, that God laid out for what to do about unintentional sin. So people will say, well, how come there was this other one and this one? Uh, it, it may be that this, in this case, on Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, that this was a broader scope. In any case, it doesn't change our, our understanding of what the, the temple or the tabernacle is, is drawing us to this morning. Second comment, the, uh, the, the ritual duties there mentioned in verse 6 would have been the day-to-day things like trimming the wicks on the oil lamps or um, burning incense or putting new bread on the table, which they did every day. But once a year, once a year on that special day, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16 is where, where God describes the special duties of the high priest. And we won't read it for, for the sake of time, but the ceremony or kind of the process includes uh, a bull and two goats, that's part of it. The high priest would, the, the bull would be sacrificed uh, to atone for the sins of the high priest and his family. And so the priest would take blood from that bull and uh, some coals from an altar and incense with him into the most holy place. And he would sprinkle some blood and there was a process there that, that detailed how that would happen. And then he would come out and he would, they would sacrifice one of the goats. And, and, and the same process would happen again. And this goat, the, the, the life given by the goat and the blood from the goat would, would be the thing that God used to atone for the sins of all of the rest of the people beyond the high priest and his family. And then there was the second goat, which was still alive, and the high priest would come out and place his hands on the head of, the, of that goat and confess over it all of the sins of the people from the previous year because this had been done a year before and a year before and a year before. So the sins from the last year were confessed by the high priest over this goat, and then that goat was led out alive into the wilderness and set free. And the picture there was, was God gave, used this animal to carry away, to take away the sins of the people. And that's where we get our picture of a, of a scapegoat. So you have this, this deeply meaningful ritual that happens once a year. But I think the thing that, that Hebrews is drawing our attention to, right, is that, that while these acts of faith through obedience were, were, were sufficed for temporary atonement of sin, 
they didn't really resolve the core problem. That's where Hebrews takes us left, the core problem, which is going to be uh, inside. Let's go back to verse 8. The author says, by this, the Holy Spirit, by this, the, the layout of the tabernacle and the process that would happen there once a, once a year, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, or, or probably better translated, the age that was then present. According to this arrangement, everything we just read, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience or the, the inside of the worshiper but they deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So verse 8 is saying that as long as the tabernacle is standing, right, as long as there's curtains separating rooms like we had on the screen a little while ago, the, the, the people were symbolically and really, practically, separated from God. Though God arranged the, the layout of the camp and the structure of the tabernacle and the rituals of the sacrifices, all of these things, that they communicated that God was at the very center of their existence and that everything pointed to him and that he desired that they would come to him, it also made very clear that they could not. They, they could not enter into the place with his infinite holiness and their sin. They, that those two things cannot exist together. We read elsewhere that if anyone entered the most holy place when God's presence was there without being covered by the blood of a worthy sacrifice, he would instantly die. It makes me think of, the, of other passengers, passages that describe God as a consuming fire. So as much as the tabernacle drew people near to God, in, in some ways it, it also protected them from him. So the people are separated from God, and in verses 9 and 10, explain to us why all of this that was given uh, through the, the old covenant, the Levitical priests, why this whole arrangement was insufficient to deal with the, the, the kind of the core problem. All the ritual sacrifices and washings only dealt with the external. Verse 9 says they could not perfect the conscience, which is to say, I think, that they could not purify the heart. So thousands of years later, when Jesus is on the earth, he makes this clear during his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, we read where Jesus pointed to the Old Testament law that his Jewish followers would have understood and explained that the real issues were in the heart, right? He spoke about murder and said, if I, if I may paraphrase, that the heart issue was unrighteous anger. Um, he spoke of adultery and said, and I'll quote this one, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then more generally, a bit later, Jesus said that what comes out of the heart, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. They start in the heart. So this Old Testament law had sacrifices and washings to deal with external defilement from the acts of sinning, from sickness, from touching a dead person, but it didn't have a cure for the defilement of the heart. So this is verses 1 through 10, and then everything turns at verse 11. We see at the beginning of verse 11 a variation of one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. When I read the Bible, I, I look for, wherever I can find it, the words, but God. Or it usually follows some, some in, unsolvable problem or some impossible situation, but God is this, or but God did this. And, that, and, and we read you know, of his power and his plan. In verse 11, we get the variation, but when Christ appeared. Because before verse 11, right, ever since Mount Sinai, millions and millions of sacrifice had been, sacrifices had been offered in the tabernacle, later in the temples. The day of atonement had been celebrated thousands of times. Hundreds of high priests had offered 
the blood of sacrifice from animals that were killed and stayed dead, right? But as soon as the sacrifice was complete, the very next sin required that it be repeated again and again and again and again and again and again. Where we are in history, praise God, that, that chapter in history has come to an end, which is what we see in, in, in verses 11 to 14, which Maddie read earlier. We can read them again here now. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that's not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, which sounds like it came out of left field, that's a, that's a reference to another cleansing ritual for someone who came in the proximity or touched a dead body. If those processes, those rituals, can sanctify for the purification of the flesh, the external, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, that is our hearts, from dead works to serve the living God? So, but when Christ appeared, everything changes. John 1 verse 14 says it this way, the word, that's a reference to Jesus, the word became flesh, the eternal God, the son, Jesus, adds to his divinity, humanity, he becomes flesh, and made his dwelling among us. The phrase there is literally, he tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's Jesus. He comes, a high priest who is also the sacrifice, and ushers in the good things that have come, that is the new covenant in his blood, as he said at the Last Supper. And Jesus didn't go through a physical tabernacle, right? He didn't go, you didn't pull a curtain, walk in, pull another curtain, walk in to get to the presence of God. After living a perfectly sinless life through his own sacrificial death to atone for our sins, he entered into the presence of God the Father in heaven, securing an eternal redemption for us that needs no repetition. That phrase is in there, once for all. And that's basically the subject of chapter 10. So we're gonna spend more time in a couple weeks looking through why it is that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient forever, not to be repeated. So the blood of the unblemished and eternal Son of God atones for our sins and purifies us from the inside out. But it's not just that which I think is pretty neat. If you're familiar with the narrative of Jesus' crucifixion, God used some, some dramatic symbolism to show what else Jesus accomplished. It wasn't just the atonement for our sins. We read about the moment of Jesus' death starting in Matthew chapter 27, I think it is, verse 50. It says that Jesus cried out, he's, Jesus is on the cross at this point, just about to die. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I even love the fact that Jesus decides when he's gonna die. And behold, the curtain of the temple, which was the temple, not the tabernacle, but it followed basically the same pattern. So this is the curtain separating the, the holy place from the most holy place. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And if I skip forward a little bit, the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place and were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. So on all of the Yom Kippurs of the previous millennia, the high priest would go into the most holy place, into the presence of God, and then he would come out, and no one else would go in, and he couldn't go in for another year. But when Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice was accepted by God the Father, he rips that curtain from top to bottom to show the world that Jesus had opened that door forever. 
Jesus essentially said it himself in John 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For, for years, one of my favorite things to do when I meet somebody new, especially somebody who is a fellow believer of Jesus, is just to, to, to ask questions and to hear about their life story. Because I love to hear the ways that God stitches together experiences and history and background. And, and, and we read this here, right? We get thousands of years all woven together into one, one story that points to his, his, his holiness and his desire to have us come to him and his way to making that possible to draw people out of sin and into relationship with him through his grace and his love. I love that. So we've, we've kind of laid out all of our, our, our main ideas this morning, I think, at this point. So at, at this point, in my mind, I'm, I'm starting to summarize. But before I do, I, I want to kind of give you, you don't have to yell it out loud, but give you a chance to do this yourself. So imagine you're sitting down. If you're a parent with your son or daughter or whatever other situation with a friend, right, and, you're, uh, and you're, you've gone through this point, what would be the takeaway or the summary or a key point or something, one or, or two of those that you would want to say, all right, God has communicated this through his word. It's important for us to take away from this kind of historical summary and everything else. This is, this is the message. This is the key for me at this point. I'll give you a second to think about that. And I'm going to give you a couple of my own. first one I wrote down was, was that it is important that we recognize that God is holy and we are sinful and that's a problem that his righteousness can't ignore. And moreover, we are not the ones who get to define how to close that gap. So God designed a way to express faith through obedience for the nation of Israel thousands of years ago and, and he's made a way through Jesus uh, for us today. Second thing I wrote down was whether you realize it or not, whether I realize it or not, God is already at the center of our existence. And this whole world is arranged in a way that points to him. But praise God, we don't have to go to some specific place or perform some specific ritual to enter into his presence or, 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 or send somebody else to represent us into his presence in that way any longer. Jesus is now our way to the Father. And not only that, but the Bible tells us that he sends his Holy Spirit to live in Everyone who trusts in Jesus. His presence now comes to us. And the third, the third one isn't so much something in a sentence or two, but it's a theme that has been just, it's been sitting on my mind for several months through this summer. And, and it's how much, I, I, would, I would say almost, God is singularly focused on our hearts. He, what he cares about, what he looks at, what, what, he, what he wants is our heart. And, and I, I want to close with that sort of train of thought. So follow it with me for a couple of minutes. Some of you will have heard uh, this summary because if you were with us in Harlingen, my family and I had a, the privilege to go to Harlingen, Texas uh, a few weeks ago with about 20 students, about 10 leaders. It was an awesome trip. If you, are in, if you will be in middle school, or, middle school or high school next summer, so currently sixth grade through 12th grade in this year that's, that's about to start, um, I would encourage you to make plans such that you can go on that trip next summer. If you haven't heard the stories, just find somebody who went this year and ask them about what, how it was and all the rest of it, which was, which was awesome. But on the Sunday morning before we returned, we came back on a Sunday afternoon, and before we returned, we worshiped together, uh, the 30 of us, with about 20 or 30 people at Rangerville Baptist Church. It's an old kind of traditional sanctuary 
and, uh, and probably 20 or 30 people there, most of them in their, in their 70s or 80s. There, there were a few older as well. And, and the pastor, Pastor Terry, who had kind of been our, our main liaison and, and leader for the week, had asked ahead of time if someone would be willing to preach. I had volunteered for that. And Pastor Levi, who I think it was his first act as actual staff for Southwest Bible, uh, played the piano and, and with seven or eight of our, our young women uh, led worship. So we were the worship team and the teaching team that morning for that, that church, which was a, I know they said was a huge blessing to them. But I had the chance to preach, and I, I, talked, about, I talked through Psalm 73, which had been on my mind for a, a few months. And, and I made the same observation there, which has, again, just been sitting with me for a bit, that the Bible talks an awful lot about the heart. Psalm 73 begins with this line, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then today in Hebrews 9, we get this picture and this contrast between the old covenant sacrifices that could not perfect the conscience, that is our hearts, but the blood of Christ that purifies our conscience. So I want to start, just as we, as we follow this train for just a second, through several places in the Bible, I want to start with an understanding that when, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's, it's usually speaking of the soul or the spiritual center of a person. The Bible says that God knows our hearts even if we do not. And it says we are all born with a sick heart, one that's going to lead us away from what God says is good and wise. And we can see that in places like <clears throat> 1 Samuel 16. It says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We see it in Jeremiah 17 that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So the Bible says that's our default state. That's how we're born, right? With a sick and wicked heart. Psalm 73, where we were in Harlingen, tells us that the light, that life for the wicked in that state is at best uncertain and that eternity is ruin and terror for those with a wicked heart. The Bible also says that it is the Bible, it's the word of God that reveals to us that our heart is wicked in the first place. We actually saw that in, a few weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 4, a familiar verse for some where, where it says, the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we have a problem. We, the question is, what do we do? How do we fix a wicked heart? The Bible's very clear that something only God can do. It's not something we can do ourselves. One of the many places that, that, that lead us in that direction, I like, is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So if it's only God that can change our hearts, then when we realize our need, we have to take it to him. And Psalm 51, another place, gives us a, a, a kind of a template prayer we can use. Starting in verse 10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And, and one of the, the things I love about this passage in particular is it, is it shows clearly that we are not just saved from something, but for something. We are saved from sin, but we are saved for a purpose. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. When we are saved from a wicked heart and given a new heart, we enter into the mission of God to draw more people to him, enter into discipleship. And when we cry out to God, he is faithful to his promises. Ezekiel 36, for example, tells us 
God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, God's presence, in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And with this new pure heart, the door is opened to promises of God in places like Psalm 73 and Hebrews 9 and what Jesus said, which we capture in Matthew chapter 5, again in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And if, that's a, if that thread is, is new territory for you, uh, I, I, even if it's not, I want to make sure that we're all aligned uh, again on, on what it's saying, that, that the whole new heart thing happens through faith, and specifically faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, we read this a minute ago, that God became a man, that's Jesus, without a wicked heart, who lived an entire lifetime without one wicked thought, word, or action. And instead of just returning to heaven, which he was absolutely within his right to do, he chose to take on himself the punishment for all of our wickedness and offer us the reward for his pure heart. So he died as a sacrifice unjustly on a cross for our sins, and he rose again to prove his power over Satan, sin, and death, and offers to us through faith to change our hearts. I said in the first service too, it's not, it's not something that we earn, right? it's a gift offered to us because of that finished work of Jesus. There's a verse many of us go back to as a reminder of this. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're going to leave it there this morning and continue uh, in the next few weeks. Will you pray with me as I close my Bible and try and get out of here? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your plan. Thank you for your attention to detail. Thank you that the way curtains were, were made and the way boxes were built and tents were, were stood up all were, were a part of you communicating truth to people thousands of years ago and to us now. Thank you for, thank you for, for bringing us into this chapter of history where we have access because of Jesus' death and life to your presence wherever we are. Thank you for the faithfulness of those who didn't, that, that went through the process of, of, of the old covenant, but thank you that we live in the era of the new covenant. God, that's a, uh, we, we know that's intentional. And so God, I pray that th that would sink into our hearts and you would draw our hearts, whether for the first time this morning, the first time to trust you, or renewed and expanded desire to follow you and to glorify you with our lives. I pray that you would do that in our hearts as we continue to worship this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.